If you want to turn to Hosea, the book of Hosea tonight, you will find that on a pew Bible. If you want to use a pew Bible, page 607 uh, of the Bible in the back of the pew in front of you. If you'd like to use that, would like to join us there. We've been doing an overview of each book of the Bible about once a month on Sunday evenings and specifically discussing how that Bible, how that book of the Bible relates the story of Jesus. It has enriched my understanding of the Bible and I find this more and more all the time. I'm still in the process of learning this more the more I look into the Bible of how much the story of Jesus is woven through everything in the Bible from the beginning to the end. It's one unified story even though these are God's using different human writers to write down each of these books in different time periods, different styles, different genres. But all of it is trying to be, is telling this story of Jesus and the significance of Jesus so that his people would be prepared for the significance of, of his coming and that we have the advantage of looking back and seeing how this whole story is fitting together. And we are getting into what we often call the minor prophets. There are 12 books at the end of your Old Testament and the way that it's, it's arranged in most of our Bibles. These occur at the end of the Old Testament, and minor uh, does not mean that they are any less important. Uh, it only means that they are not quite as lengthy of books as the major prophets are, the books that we have just studied in this series. But since they are called minor prophets, and sometimes maybe for other reasons, maybe there can be a little bit more challenging. I mean, some of these guys' names we even have struggle pronouncing in these books. Uh, maybe for other reasons, they are one of they are some of the most neglected books in the scriptures. And I hope to spend a little bit of time with them over the next few months as we get into some of these. Because they are shorter books, these sermons dealing with them are probably going to be shorter sermons. Now, Hosea is one of the longer ones of that those, but most of them will be shorter books, and so our sermons covering them, doing an overview, will probably be shorter. I'm sure every one of you will be extremely disappointed in that. So we are going to take a look at Hosea tonight, just doing an overview and specifically focusing on what this book is meant to tell us about Jesus Christ. Hosea's ministry takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel. Just a just quick history lesson here. Israel's a united kingdom for uh, about... Uh, uh, for a, a certain amount of time in its history, if you study this, we're talking about Old Testament history, the old Israel here, there's going to be a point where it's divided to where there are northern tribes, there are southern tribes. The northern kingdom is sometimes called just the name Israel. Many times it goes by the most prominent tribe of those ten, and that is Ephraim. And that is often what the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, will be referred to throughout this book. Hosea's ministry seems to be centered in that northern kingdom, and the king who is in place during his ministry is a man by the name of Jeroboam. Now he is the second Jeroboam, Jeroboam the second. The first Jeroboam was the first king when the kingdom initially divided. Now there is someone else who has taken on that name and as bad as the first Jeroboam was, he was known as Jeroboam who caused Israel to sin by setting up two places of idolatry, places of worship. He set up golden calves of all things. They, they, Israel should have known from their history, but this is how far they have gone away from what God intended. They are reverting back to the pagan history that they have, even uh, of 
something of their time coming out of Egypt. And that's significant when you look at Hosea because much of this book is going to be retelling the Exodus story. So there are a lot of connections between those two stories in this book. But Jeroboam I had set that up, but now a few generations later, Jeroboam II had perpetuated that idol worship. And that was, was really what the northern kingdom became known for. And Hosea is thrown in as a prophet in the middle of all this. A prophet is someone who not only is telling of things to come, but he's addressing the current situation. He is a mouthpiece for God. He's a spokesman for God. And that's who Hosea is called upon to be. But not only prophets are called upon to preach God's word, sometimes they are called upon to do some very difficult, very strange and challenging actions that are supposed to teach lessons as well. When we looked at Ezekiel, we saw that Ezekiel's got some bizarre actions that he is called upon to do as a prophet. But each of those actions are not just God trying to to laugh at someone by arbitrarily putting them through something so he can laugh, watch them do whatever he commands them to do. No, those are their lessons. He was preaching through the actions as well as through the words. And you're certainly going to see that in Hosea as well. Because Hosea is going to open up with one of the most vivid and, and um, in some ways disturbing, really emotionally challenging for us to think through. Uh, uh, illustrations, actions that God ever calls upon his prophets to do. And that is, he is called upon in this opening section to take a wife of harlotry and to have children of harlotry is what the text is going to tell us. Now Hosea is going to take a woman by the name of Gomer as his wife and it's unclear whether or not at this point that she's already uh, a soliciting prostitute. We don't know that for sure. But it is clear that at some point during the course of their marriage, she is going to either return to that practice or she is going to begin that practice. And she's going to get herself into a lot of trouble, including some, some debts uh, that she has, has built up in the, in the process. The whole point of the beginning of this book, as bizarre as that sounds, now Hosea, I want you to marry someone who will cheat on you and will cheat on you probably with multiple people and will cheat on you in such a way where she's going to be in a situation of debt that she is going to be very much in a helpless situation. It's someone whom society would would have given up on. And that's who I want you to take as your wife. Now, the whole point of the beginning of this book is that Hosea is stepping into God's shoes and feeling his pain. He's getting just a taste of that pain. And this is not just so that Hosea will think through that. This is so that all the people who observe Hosea, and this taking place in his lifetime, and all of us who have the benefit of reading about this later on, it will challenge us to put ourselves into God's shoes as well and think about this. And I really think this is what the first part of this book is begging us to do. Think about yourself. How would you respond if you were in a situation like this? How would you feel? How would you respond to a, chat, to a spouse who has cheated on you? And there is this parallel in this book between the relationship between Hosea and Gomer and the relationship between God and Israel. And that is the 
that parallel is the vehicle that drives the rest of this book. Now the story is told in the first three chapters. But the rest of this book is going to elaborate on that. It's, it's going to wrestle with this idea of what, what God does in a situation like this. Would you wrestle with that, son? Of what you would do if you, were, if you had that particular situation? If you read the scriptures, uh, that is one scenario that would allow for you to divorce someone, to send him or her away if he or she had done that to you. That is... It's the divorce never God's intention, but that is what Jesus says is the, is the scenario that would permit you to do that if that had happened to you. God is faced with three options here. Since a covenant has been broken, Hosea's covenant broken by Gomer, God's covenant with Israel, and by the way, when we use the word covenant, we mean a relationship that is built on promises, it's built on commitments. And that's been broken here. And Israel has done that because this book is going to specifically look at that idolatry that has been going on for generations. And now it it has reached a point where it has become so widespread that God looks at his people as a whole and he sees that they're no longer my people. In fact, that's, that's going to be one of the names of the, the, the children that, that Hosea and Gomer are going to have. Not my people. Uh, I, I, they're, they're no longer what I intended them to be. This is not family anymore. Uh, not, not in terms of what it was supposed to be. God is left with three options. As he sees that this idolatry is really adultery. Option one, he could let things continue the way they have been going. And that is maybe just have a marriage in name only. Sometimes marriages will exist that way, even though it's been broken and the couple just continues to exist in name only for for years to come. It never really addresses what's going on. It's a broken, it's a dysfunctional marriage at that point. Option two, he could end the covenant. He could divorce, as we would say. Divorce himself from Israel, withdraw himself, cut them off from his household. You know, he started this whole project with Abraham long ago. He could start it over with somebody else. He, he could just, just scrap what has been going on. That they, have, they have become something that was not intended in this whole relationship, and I'll just start over with someone else. Or third, he could renew the covenant. Not just continue things the way they are going, but work on some solution that will renew this covenant. You've heard some couples that will renew their vows at some point. God is looking at a situation where we need to have a marriage scenario set up again here. We cannot just continue as we have been going between God and his people. We need to renew our vows. We need to renew that marriage. And this this last option is going to be the one that he chooses in this book. Although there's some some real wrestling in this book as far as what to do. Now I, I, I know that I don't pretend to know exactly how God operates. I know that the scriptures tell us that God is right in his actions. His judgment is right. His thoughts are right even when ours are not. He is at least portrayed in this book 
as either a husband at times or sometimes as a father with a son is another scenario you're going to read in chapter 11 of this book uh, of having a rebellious son and, and wrestling with what, what to do in a situation like that. Do I give him up? You know, or do, do I take him back? What, what do I do? And so the, it's, a very, it's a very emotionally driven book. You get a lot into the heart of God. But I think that God grounds his decision to take this last option. To find a way not to accept what Israel has done. There will be judgment. But there will be a renewal of the covenant. He's not done with them. He will take her back into a covenant relationship. And that's a choice that's going to be grounded in some characteristics that he gives us in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Specifically, God's love, God's compassion, God's faithfulness. Love, compassion, faithfulness. Exactly what the things that Israel has not shown to him, he will still show to her, even when she has been unfaithful. And that's the same choice that God makes Hosea make with Gomer. When she's gotten herself into a real mess to pay off her debt and to renew the marriage with her. As Tim Mackey says, I agree that the theme of this book is that God's love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. As great as your sin is, it does not have the same depths that God's love and his mercy have. This language of redemption, renewal, covenant, all of that should have us thinking about Jesus. I know the name of Jesus is not given to us in this book. This book is alluded to a few times. I know it's directly quoted in at least two places that we're going to mention in just a few minutes in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. But the whole theme of this book should have us thinking about Jesus because our story is one of spiritual adultery and therefore separation from a loving God. It's a story of being in a condition of brokenness. And it's a story of God coming to pay off our debts and renewing us into a new covenant relationship with him in a way that no one else would have been able to and no one else cared to. There are three main sections to this book. Chapters 1 through 3 is the story section. It's going to tell us about Hosea and Gomer. Chapters 4 through 11 are going to be accusations and warnings for Israel, and that section is going to be closed by a poem, a very emotional poem. And then chapters 12 through 14 are going to have some more accusations and warnings. There's a lot of legal terminology in these prophets, and it's also going to be closed with a poem in chapter 14. Throughout these sections, we're going to see consistent language, and that is judgment for sin. But after that judgment, a new salvation experience. This book, again, as I said earlier, it's going to play on Exodus a lot. In fact, there is an explicit connection the New Testament makes that when God recalls the Exodus, when uh, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and you may want to look at that if you want to flip over there, chapter 11, verse 1, God in the original context here of Hosea, God is originally going to, he's going to recall the Exodus when he says that he called his son, Israel, Israel the nation, he called his son out of Egypt. 
Now you read the New Testament and Matthew is going to quote this scripture after Jesus is taken to Egypt as a child. The story is that after he is born and Herod, the king of that area, has, has heard that there is uh, someone who has been born in Bethlehem, that these magi from the east are going to see, and that he has been born and they, they refer to him as the king of the Jews, and Herod does not want a rival to him to share that title with, and he wants to snuff out this life very early on in a way very familiar to what Pharaoh did back in Egypt whenever he tried to snuff out life of all the, the male babies in, in the land of Egypt. Now Herod wants to do that in Bethlehem. Jesus' family, Mary and Joseph, they hear of this and they want to keep him safe, so they end up going, of all places, down to Egypt a place where often in the scriptures Israelites end up going to to take refuge in time of famine or in other times of difficult situation. And so they end up down in Egypt. And when they learn of the death of Herod and they're coming back up to the promised land out of Egypt, Matthew, as he's retelling that story, he quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. There's a parallel here. There was an exodus where God had called his son Israel out of Egypt to begin their exodus into their land. Now there's a connection with what Jesus is doing because Jesus, known as the Son of God, called out of Egypt to begin his ministry in the land. Think about some of those parallels there. Jesus' whole ministry can be viewed as a new exodus, his own exodus back into the land of Canaan. Think about that. Jesus, he's he is identifying people in slavery to their sins and the powers of darkness in his ministry. He's giving them truth which will set them free. He becomes, in his death, he becomes their Passover and dies in their stead. And he ushers them into a new land as they pass through the water and into him. All of that is going on in the ministry of Jesus, and there are many other parallels that are there. In the context of Hosea, God uses that experience of sin, slavery, exile, wilderness to once again call his people into something better, to woo them out of their lostness. The idea is in Hosea, there's going to have to be another exodus. The people are, are more like Egypt at this point than they are like Israel. And so once again, he is going to let them experience the wilderness. Let them experience exile so that he can once again show them what it means to redeem them, to buy them back, to bring them into a relationship with him and to the blessings that he has in store for them. Hosea is resetting the Exodus story for us and I'm convinced ultimately that happens in Jesus and through Jesus. Because we have a new exodus in Jesus foretold in this book, we have another connection the New Testament draws by quoting another verse. And this is going to be our last connection. The lesson will be yours tonight. I told you these, these sermons would probably be a little shorter. And that is Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Hosea chapter 13, verse 14 is going to be another passage that the New Testament picks up on. If you read this passage, and some of your translations are going to <clears throat> maybe a little different here on the grammar of whether these are questions that are asked or whether these are statements that are given, but here is what Hosea 13, 14 says. God says, I will ransom them from the grave. I will redeem them from death. 
Now, there's a lot of judgment language that's, that's used in this passage. There's, there's some, some harshness as natural consequences of what comes when, of that spiritual idolatry, that adultery of getting away from God, separation. But he says, I will ransom them from the grave. Again, death comes along with sin. But I will ransom them from the grave. I will redeem them from death. And then he asks two questions here in a very powerful poetic form. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, or Sheol, maybe your word there, is your sting? Now, if you've read your New Testament, you may recognize those words from a climactic moment in the New Testament's greatest chapter on the resurrection of the dead. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here in Hosea, and in 1 Corinthians 15, we could call this a taunt of death. Now we know death is a reality in this fallen world, but it is not God's ally. It is not God's intention for us to remain in a condition of sin or the death that comes along with it. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is going to call it the last enemy. Walter Kaiser here says the basic meaning of this passage is to say, come on death, let's see your stuff now. Come on grave, put up your fists and fight. We've been talking a lot about spiritual warfare in some of our other passages and this plays into that, how ultimately God is reversing the curse of sin and death. He is finding a way to defeat this and allowing us to have life instead of death. And he's setting up that idea here in Hosea 13. If you're in a, one of the original listeners to what Hosea is preaching on here, or if you are reading this in its original context, this may seem puzzling to you. You may wonder, well, how in the world is God going to do that? The death is still all around us today. That's why the New Testament brings the whole story of God to its completion. It shows us that all of these passages that are quoted in the New Testament are God dropping hints all along of what he's doing. And Jesus pulls it all together for us. Judgment is a reality. And when a nation like Assyria in, in Hosea's time is going to be a tool of judgment, some death may come with it, but God takes no pleasure in death. And he's not surrendering to death. He will not let death write the final chapter. In the Exodus story, again, connections with that Exodus, the last plague upon the Egyptians, there is what's called a destroyer, a destroying angel who brings death on the night of the Passover to the firstborn. But God makes a way for his people to be delivered from that death if they have the blood of the Lamb across their doors. Jesus, who is our Passover, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is not only our ransom for our sins, if we are covered in him, we also know that death no longer has power over us. We may die, and if we live long enough, we will. This body, as it is now, is not made to live forever. It is fallen. It is mortal. It hurts. It feels pain. It has weakness. It will wear out. But that's not the end of the story. 
if we understand the story through Jesus. When Jesus is raised back to life from death, when he goes to the grave, and yet the grave does not hold him, he's not the only one. He is the first of many. 1 Corinthians 15 says he is the first fruits. That means that there's, there's an initial harvest and that initial harvest is just a signpost of things to come. It means that there will be more fruit that is to come. And the whole idea is that if we are in Jesus Christ, that God has, if God has conquered death through Jesus Christ, if we buy that he's been raised from the dead, then it also means that all who are in him will also be raised from the dead. This body will be transformed into something immortal, something in conformity with the body of, of his glory, something which does not die, something which no longer feels pain, something which will not end. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 looks back to Hosea and says, when that moment comes, when all the dead are raised, and we're in that that in-between time right now, when Jesus has been raised, but the final resurrection hasn't happened yet. It'll happen when he returns. When that moment happens, then the true fulfillment of Hosea 13, 14 will come about in Jesus. And we will all be able to join in the taunt of death and say, oh, death, where is your sting? Redemption, renewal, covenant, new life. These are the themes of Hosea. And these are the ideas that we find fulfilled in our Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Our God, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb, our Savior, our Lord, the one who died on our behalf, the one who was raised from the dead, the one in whom we trust, the one in whom we have life, the one in whom we can be restored to a covenant relationship with you based on the new covenant in his blood. We come to you thanking you for that. Thanking you that we can be at one with you and we can be at one with each other because we are in him. And for those of us who share in him today, Father, thank you for this hope that we have. That through him we are not slaves to our sin that we are not lost in our brokenness and we do not have to fear death because we know that you have the victory over death. Thank you for letting us share in this victory. Father, for those of us here who may have doubts about whether we, we have this hope, uh, whether we are truly in, in Jesus, uh, that we can share in these blessings. We pray that that you would be working on their hearts, that they will be thinking through these things tonight. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
tonight. Uh, if you are here struggling with something in your life, we're going to sing a song of invitation. It's a chance to, to share with us something that we can be praying about on your behalf that you may be wrestling with uh, spiritually this evening. Uh, it's also a chance for, as I said in the prayer, if you're not sure that you're in Christ, if you're not sure that you have made him your Lord, that you have been baptized into him for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism is not just a ritual that we go through. It's, it is the moment, according to the Bible, when forgiveness of sins happens, when union with Jesus happens, when we go from being just myself to being joined with him. Now, that baptism means nothing if, if it's not accompanied by faith in the working of God. That's Colossians 2, verse 12. It's, but it's, it's our participation in the whole story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We get to join him there in the waters. And if we're putting our faith in God, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience, according to 1 Peter 3, 21. It, it is when we, as the Israelites, pass through the water and out of slavery and into something new. We pass through the water and we go from this self who is dead in his trespasses and sins to being joined with Jesus who is full of life. And I'm joined with him and I'm raised to walk in newness of life with him. It's, it's my journey of my exodus out of slavery and into freedom. If you want to talk about that with us tonight, or if you have anything else you'd like us to pray about, we encourage you to come as together we stand and as we see.